0: In his new book, Voltrush, The Winners and Losers in the Race to Go Green, Henry Sanderson probes the dark sides of the energy transition. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke with Sanderson as part of Postmedia's New World Disorder series, which explores recent shifts in geopolitics and what the West must do to adapt. Sanderson spent the better part of a decade working as a journalist in China, reporting on the growth there between roughly 2007 and 2014. And he's now based in London, working for benchmark Mineral Intelligence, a company that analyzes supply and demand trends in the battery industry and mineral prices. Sanderson sees the energy transition as a positive thing on balance, but his book explores the ecological shadows and geopolitical consequences of what's happening. As always, the interview is edited for Clarity and Brevity. Henry, thanks so much for coming on down to business today. Thanks for having me. You have this new book out, and if I had to summarize it in a few words, electric vehicles are a climate solution, but we shouldn't be naive. There's a dark side. And I wanted to ask if you could explain what you were trying to convey in writing this book.
1: Yeah, so what I was trying to convey is you know, the challenge of scaling up and, you know, moving to clean energy, this transition we need to do much faster than previous historical energy transitions. I'm trying to sort of open the reader's eyes to what it will involve. You know, I think many people in the West, we've lost sight of how to build things, how to manufacture things. Our economies have been focused on financial services in the UK or, you know, building apps. And I think we've lost some sight of how to build things, the difficulty in how to build things. And I'm really trying to open people's eyes to say, yes, we need to shift to EVs. That's right. We need to shift to clean energy. But at the same time, we need to build these new supply chains. And in some cases in the West from scratch. And I'm also trying to show the geopolitics behind these supply chains and how China has Behind the West back has, you know, become very dominant in a lot of clean energy technologies, which is becoming a a problem now for the West. So I'm definitely not saying we shouldn't move to EVs or clean energy. We need to move and super fast. I'm just saying don't be naive about what it involves, right? We in Europe and the US, we need to build now. We can't offshore everything. We need to build and here's what it looks like now. And here's where we need to go.
0: And keying off of what you said, I mean, as you tell the story, when it comes to electric vehicles and electrification, Chinese companies were first on the scene. They spotted this opportunity before everyone else. And I think one of the implications of that is now Western automakers, in some ways, are going to need to work with Chinese battery manufacturers to build their cars
1: yeah, so that's that's what's happened. We've fallen so far behind that now to make this accelerated transition, it's very hard to do it without Chinese technology. You know, China produces eighty percent of, of the batteries, eighty percent of the solar supply chain. And a key problem is yes, the West can catch up, but we don't have the know how, the technical know how, the engineering know how to do that very quickly, or perhaps not as well as some of these Chinese companies. So I think in the near term, we may need these Chinese companies to come into Western markets. And we've seen that in Europe, right, with uh, CATL, Chinese battery company, coming to uh, Germany, announcing a big plant in Hungary, and uh, many other Chinese companies. Where I am in the UK, Envision, a Chinese company, is building the biggest gigafactory in the UK. So for sure, we need some of that expertise. But at the same time, we need to catch up, right? And we've seen homegrown competitors emerge. uh, North in Sweden is one I write about. There's, There's other in France, others in the U.S., we need to support them, right, obviously, to build up our own industry. But I don't think we should be naive about how difficult it is. You know, we don't have the technical know-how. Often it involves buying machines from China. But then lastly, I would say it is also an opportunity because we're not just talking about onshoring Chinese technology, replicating it. We can do it in a more environmentally friendly way, hopefully a more sustainable way.
0: Yeah. China is an area that yep. I think you know something about, right? You spent several years as a reporter working in China. Can you say a little about what you reported on while you were there and whether that was where you got the idea to write this book <laughs>
1: I, I didn't when I was living in China, but I was always interested in, in in clean energy in China because you know you were sort of living and breathing the economic miracle at that time, which was you know, incredible GDP growth figures, incredible you know, amounts of construction, everywhere you went was, you know, just these forests of new skyscrapers, I I remember so vividly everywhere you went. You know, some ghost towns, obviously, as well, were cropping up. Post-financial crisis, they launched this massive stimulus that went into a lot of construction and and amazing infrastructure, high-speed trains, etc but I also lived through you know the impact of China's growth model on the environment which was just horrific and the pollution in Beijing I'll never forget and I think I put it in the book was, was apocalyptic and you used to look over Beijing the city with with has these huge ring roads which just endless lanes of traffic and then this thick heavy layer of smog across the city and you know you'd wear your mask this is before covid obviously you'd always check the air pollution score on your phone be the first thing you do in the morning you'd have air filter at home, even some of the kids in the schools would play under a big tone, like protecting them from the atmosphere. So it really it felt like the end days of, <laughs> of the fossil fuel economy. So I was very interested at that time in clean energy, because also at that time, I mean, just to take a step back, like after the financial crisis, both the US and China wanted to stimulate their economies in a green way, stimulate green energy. And the U.S. Uh, did try, and Tesla was was a huge success from from that program. But a lot of those companies in the U.S. actually went bankrupt, unfortunately. But China did stimulate in, in quite a you know quite a big way, and and ended up dominating solar production, and then later on battery production. So yeah, the roots of my interest lie yeah, living in China.
0: I think you said before you, you described it as China went behind the U.S.'s back in building this EV supply chain. But did this is all fairly in the open, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, there's a couple of other ways to look at it, which is probably we should be grateful they've done this, right? Because, I mean, you always see people saying solar's fallen so much in price, batteries have fallen so much in price. And China, I think, is a big reason why that's happened. And we've seen in the battery supply chain that. They invested hugely in nickel in Indonesia, in, in other minerals. And in a way, thank God, right? That's, that's enabling us to, to transition to EVs, right? No one else has done it. So yeah, we, they're enabling this clean energy transition in a lot of ways. If you think about it in, in that way, and to your point, of course it was done in the open. And even now they're buying lithium projects across Africa. It's all been done in the open. And the interesting thing I found in this book is often at each stage of China's move into clean energy, often it'd be Western banks or Western investors. Of, you know, supporting these companies to do it. So it's not not been hidden from the West for sure.
0: You talk, I think, in the book about how China was very like smart about building up even EV adoption in its country through subsidies and protectionism and using yeah. subsidies for Chinese batteries. And now in North America we're seeing some of that. So I see. In some ways, has this EV transition, is it all shifting the world towards more protectionism?
1: I think it is. I think that's a really interesting point, which is that this is a policy driven transition in so many ways and, and governments are just playing, playing a huge role in it. And I think Europe and US slightly, uh, slightly differ, right? And, and the US is adopting some of the methods now, I think that China did, which as you say, like China banned foreign battery producers at a sort of critical point in the, in the development. And the US is also saying now that they don't want Chinese companies involved in the supply chain. And, you know, if you think about Europe, you know, there have been a lot of policy actions that have shifted automakers to EVs, most notably, you know, launching fleet-wide carbon emission targets, right, that force automakers essentially to, to move into EVs to meet these targets. So I agree. I think the Western governments have come around to the idea of porting you know, industrial policy.
0: You, you talk a lot in this book about the ecological shadows, I think is the, the term you use, yeah. for how this Energy and EV transition is affecting the world. One of the things that comes up is that we're mining more than ever now, that in some ways, this energy transition really signals a huge boom for mining.
1: I think that's right. Um, and that, that ecological shadow, actually, I um, borrowed that term from a Canadian academic.
0: That would be Peter Daverne, a University of British Columbia professor who specializes in global environmental politics.
1: I just really liked his book and it sort of summed up, um, so much. It's really nice of themes encapsulated. And, uh, yeah, you should definitely, um, interview him as well. Um, and yeah, essentially what most people don't realize is that, you know, to meet these ambitious goals, net zero targets, it's going to need a lot of mining. And I think it's a sort of uncomfortable truth, but it's for the miners, for others in the supply chain, it's going to be huge, huge boom, right? We're going to need lots of copper. Uh, to electrify everything, we need lots of lithium, you know, rare earth, uh, other other metals. And I think the difference here though also is that a lot of these minerals, you can't just dig them up and put them in a car, they need to be um, processed to quite high purity specifications. And if you're talking about rare earths, obviously that involves a huge amount of processing. So these are some quite complicated supply chains that will involve lots of mines, yes, but also lots of processing, lots of plants to produce cathode and anode materials. So all this means is this is going to be a huge economic uh, opportunity for, for, for Western countries going forward. And, and we can see from China that billions have been you know, created in wealth from the supply chain already. And some of the top billionaires in China are guys from the clean energy sector. So it really is a massive, massive economic opportunity for the West and definitely one for the mining industry. We recently did an exercise, a benchmark, where we looked at how many mines would be needed to meet, I think, 2035 demand, and it's over 300. Wow. Yeah, it really is uh, huge for the mining industry. And you've got to remember that mines aren't easy to build, to construct. They take a long time to get into production. So it's really a very challenging situation.
0: Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. That's a lot of mines uh, that need to be built in an extremely short period of time. In the book, you talk about the Democratic Republic of Congo, where so much of the world's cobalt is mined. There's child labor there. There's extremely dangerous working conditions. All these things that people want to believe are problems of the past. Some people would even compare it to a modern version of colonialism.
1: Yeah, so you're right. You know, what, what, what's so interesting about this supply chain is, you know, you have the electric vehicle at one end and then quite a few steps down, you, you get to mines and you have this situation where the Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, produces over 70% of the world's cobalt at the moment and they just have incredibly rich, uh, deposits of copper and cobalt there. And they're probably going to be the biggest producer this this decade, so using the current lithium ion technology, we're probably going to need a lot of cobalt so you know unfortunately when this e v demand started to come along, it required more cobalt from the d s c that pushed up the price, so we had many more individual miners going out and digging for for cobalt children involved and I think this is a you know big shock to to a lot of people in the e v supply chain that the, this was going on. But it had been going on for many years for electronics, for, for smartphone batteries. And I think what's so interesting is that because the EV is a green product, it's very uncomfortable to have that kind of supply chain in it. So in a way, it's good because it's really focusing attention on what's going on. And we've seen automakers now try to engage a bit more with the DRC and try to at least think about solutions, find out ways to help. So the situation hopefully will improve with more of that engagement. But it is a very uncomfortable sort of truth of the supply chain, that the situation in, in the DRC. it's obviously a poor country. You have big industrial miners there with mines behind big protective fences, but you have a lot of individual miners who just go out and and dig up for the, the mineral with no safety protection and, you know, very little infrastructure.
0: And so, yeah, you have these very unsafe and dangerous working conditions, um, which seem inhumane. Another thing that you get into in the book, you talk about some of the environmental disasters that have occurred because of the scale of the mines. I may get the number slightly wrong, but it was something like 200,000 gallons of diesel in a Russian nickel mine that flowed into a river. I mean, it was a mind boggling amount. Like You can imagine a little bit of diesel spilling, but on that scale sort of speaks to how big mines today are.
1: Yes, that's right. I and mean, when you go to these mines, I mean, I think that's one of the realizations I had during the book that, you know, I went to Chuquicamata copper mine in Chile. It's, you know, it's one of the deepest holes on earth. It's just a massive, massive open pit. You know, you stand before the open pit and you look down, and these huge mine trucks are like tiny specks down below, right? And and the same, the Mutanda mine in, in the DRC where I went is a you know, massive, great open pit. You know, so the scale of these mines is huge, as is sometimes their impact on the environment. And I think it's very worrying that in countries like Indonesia, it's very biodiverse, it's very, you know, sensitive environment. You know, nickel is going to come from Indonesia. There's lots of mining going on there. So these are kind of the ecological shadows that I think are being generated from this, you know, sudden, like exponential increase in demand. You know, mining is going to feel the impact. But I, you know, I think the, the West probably needs to come up with some idea about what is an acceptable mine and what the mine of the future looks like. And I'd, I'd like to see some, you know, more ideas about that because any mining will have an impact. So what is something that we're willing to tolerate? And within the mining in the book, you do have very different types of mines, like the lithium in Chile and, and Argentina. It, it's more a case of evaporating brine in the sunlight, you know, over quite a long time, it's not so much digging as, as a conventional mine. So, you know, you have different trade-offs, you know, the, the lithium extraction is low CO2, low carbon, etc. But you, you're you using up water in very water-starved areas. But then you have normal mining, which is much more carbon-intensive, but might be less water-intensive. So, yeah, I think it's, it's really important that building so many mines has a lot of, will, will have an impact. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because from a CO2 point of view, I think, um, the impact of mining is going to be nothing compared to fossil fuels. But I think what, what I'm trying to say in the book is that, you know, we're building these supply chains from scratch now in the West. We don't want to replicate the same mistakes. We don't want to have CO2 intense supply chains because every additional ton of carbon is one that we don't want to emit into the atmosphere, right? So we have an opportunity to, to build something new to do it better and then in areas like Indonesia where they use coal for a lot of their grid you know the energy is quite dirty there we in the west should help countries like that to transition to clean energy and automakers and and others should help and improve the situation
0: actually i wanted to ask you something you know you're someone who's visited the biggest copper mines the biggest lithium evaporation brine ponds in chile in the middle of the desert What's what's it like when you're actually looking in these places and feeling in these places? What are there some of the, like the moods around them?
1: Well, it's, yeah, I know, Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, what's so amazing about going to these places is, you know, they they operate just you know twenty four hours a day, yeah, you know, huh. all days of the year. I guess it's the relentlessness of the extraction that, to me, as someone outside the industry, is quite sort of eye opening, but you know, our entire world just relies on these minerals constantly being dug up, right? All hours of the day, um, completely relentless pace of extraction, and and you know, just the size of the the trucks, the, the diesel trucks. You know, the energy intense nature of it is is very very stark when when you go to these places. It, and often they're much more like big industrial facilities, like the the processing part of of a mine is like industrial facilities in China or something. So they're just colossal. Pieces of infrastructure, and you realize how difficult it is to, to build these things. And, you know, I tell the story about Robert Friedland in my book, and he's one of the few people who's discovered and, and built mines from discovery to production. And I think, you know, he went to the DRC in the late 90s, and, and his mine there came into production, you know, last year or the year before. So it takes a really long time.
0: It takes a very long time. Robert Friedland, of course, is known to many Canadians. He discovered Voices Bay which is one of the biggest nickel deposits. This is actually something I wanted to ask you about because so much of the mines that you hear about are in Africa or not in Europe, not in North America, often in South America, in remote places. If the premise of your book, switching to EVs, is going to require a massive increase in mining of metals like nickel, are we going to be able to deliver on that? And is it going to require more mines in places like Europe and North America?
1: Yeah, that's a really important question. Are we going to be able to deliver for things like uh, lithium? This decade, I think, could be could be quite quite tricky in terms of you know me catching up with with demand, especially in in the near term, right, in, in the next few, next few years. But I think the question of whether we need mines in in Europe and, and, and America, yes, you know, it would be good if those some of those mines are developed just to diversify supply, but. If they aren't, you know, I'm sure there is enough elsewhere. But but the question is really, how much is the Western world going to move to a completely ex-China supply chain? That's also a fundamental question because like Biden's Inflation Reduction Act doesn't want any Chinese companies involved. If the West wants to cut China completely out, then, you know, a lot of that nickel from Indonesia wouldn't be eligible, for example, right? And a lot of the cobalt from DRC. So then that means you need additional mines, right? Somewhere else operated by Western companies. So that increases the need for more localized mines. But uh, yeah, for sure, I think, you know, mining countries like Canada, where you are, Australia, um, you know, I see them as, uh, you know, and Africa as well, very promising contenders to be suppliers.
0: So you talk about that big spill of diesel in Russia at a nickel mine, and Russia is historically a big miner. Uh, Given the situation with what's going on with Russia right now, increasingly cutting off ties with the West, is this going to have a big impact on the EV transition?
1: Yes. I think before this invasion of Ukraine, Europe had thought that Russian nickel could be a good supply of nickel for Europe's EV industry. But I think now that's probably going to be quite unlikely. So what that does basically is if we don't have Russia and Russian nickel, we're going to be much more reliant on Indonesia, which means reliance on China because all the projects in Indonesia pretty much are Chinese. So that pushes us even more into reliance on, on China, which, as I say in the book, is already very high for most uh, clean energy technologies and, and these minerals. So it's, uh, it's something to bear in mind that Russia was diversification from China uh, in that sense.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I I hear two different sides, like that there's going to need to be more mines in Canada. And at the same time, as you mentioned, that if we can do it better, more cleanly, in a more socially acceptable way, then it may be easier to build these mines. Do you see a sort of financial incentive emerging for mining companies to achieve those things?
1: Yeah, that's huge. I mean, um, the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, the automotive company, gets a EV tax credit if a certain percentage of the critical minerals come from free trade agreement countries or north america so right there the producer of the EV is getting tax break money essentially so there's huge incentive for them to buy from free trade agreement countries like chile and and australia or you know canada as well it could be a huge beneficiary of of that policy i think there's huge incentive you know to mine in, in the western world the, the problem is just it's very hard, right? And it's hard to get projects permitted in the US. It's hard in Europe. You know, we've seen cases like in Spain and Portugal it's been very hard to open new mines, right? So it, it is very hard, but I do think the, the willingness of the automaker to, to buy a product from these mines is is strong.
0: Yeah, the book is about, really about this transition to electric vehicles. And it starts with a little history of cars and how, I think it was Thomas Edison was focused I'm building an electric car.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: In your book, you, you sort of posit the idea that if we became a little less reliant on cars, we could alleviate this situation. Any chances you think that that will happen?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think there's a big question whether we use this transition to also rethink mobility and, and transportation. And there is potential for that. I mean, in London, where I am, Electric scooters, electric bikes—you know—that's just one example where batteries are providing alternative modes of transport. And also, you know, we've seen in China a lot of mini EVs, right? Smaller EVs for inner-city uses. You know, maybe for urban users um, in Europe and maybe elsewhere, we could have smaller electric vehicles, right? Provided the the charging infrastructure is there. So. That's a real opportunity. I think, you know, the problem is that if we just replace the big SUVs with electric SUVs and pickup trucks with electric trucks, we're going to need a lot of raw materials, going to need bigger batteries. So yeah, we could easily reduce that raw material demand by choosing different modes of transport. There's also things like battery swapping, you know, which is taken off in China. That's a more efficient way of using the batteries that we produce. I mean, if you think about it, most cars just sit on the road, right? They're not used. So in that car, you've got a battery that was produced through all the supply chains that I talk about, you know, stretching thousands of miles around the world using carbon, using dug up, using diesel trucks, you know, a lot of effort and energy has gone to producing that battery. And if it just sits on the road, you know, you've got to question the efficiency of, of that system. And I think we're seeing now with the high gas prices in Europe, can we be more efficient with the energy that we have? That, that's a critical question, I think.
0: Yeah, it's a fascinating book. Thank you so much.
1: No, thanks so much for you for having me.
0: That was Henry Sanderson, author of Volt Rush: Winners and Losers in the Race to Go Green. Thanks to my guest, thank you for listening, and thanks to the team behind Down to Business. Bryce Hall executive produced this show, composed and performed the original music, and designed the Down to Business logo. Noella Ovid, Victoria Wells, and Pamela Heaven provided web support in editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll return next week with another episode of Down to Business.